Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When U.S. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963, his son John Jr., or John John, as he was known then, was just three years old. During the funeral mass, the little boy grew restless, so Secret Service agent Bob Foster took him into the anteroom of the church. To keep him occupied, Agent Foster got him to practice his salute, something he had learned for Veterans Day two weeks earlier. A Marine colonel standing nearby noticed that the little boy was having a hard time, and he stepped in to assist. He demonstrated how to perform a perfect, crisp salute. When the mass was over, the boy joined his mother, Jacqueline Kennedy, and his older sister out front of the church. As the casket passed, Jackie leaned down and whispered, John, you can salute Daddy now and say goodbye. Little John took a small step forward and lifted his right hand to his brow. The haunting image of him saluting at his father's flag-covered coffin is unforgettable, and it is absolutely heartbreaking. In that moment, all of the hopes and dreams that people had placed on President Kennedy were passed on to his young son. It was a massive burden to bear and would impact every aspect of JFK Jr.'s life until the day he died in 1999, 36 years later. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is the History of the 90s, a podcast that looks back at a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we look at the cultural and social impact of John F. Kennedy Jr., a man who grew up as a living national treasure and became the most desired man in America. We'll talk to people who knew him, and you'll hear new details about his life and his short marriage to Carolyn Bissett. Their deaths not only mark the end of Camelot, they also mark the end of a paparazzi-driven 90s celebrity culture that existed in a world before social media. In 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. wasn't a popular politician, or a successful actor, or a musician with a closet full of Grammys. And yet, his death two decades ago prompted wall-to-wall media coverage, absolutely dominating the news cycle for days upon days. According to Kennedy biographer J. Randy Terraborelli, who has written several books about the famous family, including the recently published book The Kennedy Heirs, John was something bigger than that. As part of the you know, Kennedy family, which is a, a, as close as America has ever gotten to a royal family, he was really considered by many people to be sort of the Prince of Camelot. John was the whole package. In addition to his family's political legacy, he was a legitimately good-looking guy, and he wasn't afraid to flaunt it. His death was perhaps the last great celebrity story of its era, triggering a flood of covers on magazines from Newsweek to Time to People, as well as a slew of commemorative magazines full of tributes to a man positioned as an American prince. 
Before we look at the reasons why John was so famous in the 90s, let's take a minute to look back at who he was and where he came from. The little prince saluting at the funeral grew up in New York, for the most part, out of the spotlight. After high school, he broke away from family tradition and attended Brown University, where he discovered a passion for theater. John performed in numerous student-run plays, including a production that required him to shave off his infamous head of thick, curly brown hair. After graduating from Brown, John was even the lead in an off-off-Broadway play, which drew praise from the handful of people who saw it. His friends have said he seemed pretty interested in pursuing a life in theatre, but his mother would have none of it. Stephen Gillen, who recently published a book about John's life called America's Reluctant Prince, became friends with John after meeting at Brown in 1981. John's greatest uh, success, his greatest achievement, was private. It was his ability, given the enormous pressures he had placed upon him, to turn out to be a well-grounded, decent, thoughtful uh, guy. Someone said it. John was disgustingly normal. <laughs> I think that's a good way of putting it. After putting aside his pursuit of acting, John entered law school at New York University. While John was still in law school, he attended the 1988 Democratic National Convention in Atlanta to introduce his uncle, Senator Ted Kennedy. UPI coverage at the time stated, the handsome 27-year-old son of President Kennedy drew misty eyes from a charmed Democratic National Convention crowd as he spoke of two generations of Democrats united in the pursuit of justice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Over a quarter century ago, my father stood before you to accept the nomination for the presidency of the United States. So many of you came into public service because of him. In a very real sense, because of you, he is with us still. And for that, I'm grateful to all of you. John's appearance at the convention earned him a two-minute standing ovation, and it led many to wonder if he was preparing to run for office. After his speech at the convention, it seemed the world, beyond the tabloids, had suddenly taken notice of JFK Jr. It reached a fever pitch when in September 1988, People Magazine gave him the distinction of sexiest man alive. He's the only non-entertainer and the youngest man to have scored the title. The era of JFK Jr. had arrived and he was only 27 years old. Suddenly, with his movie star looks, winning charm, and down-to-earth personality, John became the most eligible bachelor in New York, if not the world. And he certainly played the field. John's exploits were obsessively chronicled by the tabloids, 
and he was romantically linked to stars such as Sarah Jessica Parker, who had just ended a seven-year relationship with Robert Downey Jr., Brooke Shields, Cindy Crawford, Julia Roberts, and Madonna. According to the book The Good Son, JFK Jr. and the Mother He Loved, John and Madonna started a secret relationship in 1988, the same year he was named Sexiest Man Alive by People magazine. Madonna had just split up with Sean Penn, and according to the book, the only place the superstar couple could let their guard down was at the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport, where they apparently bundled up in sweaters and jogged on the beach. Sadly, though, the relationship only lasted six months, though they remained friendly. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As the 80s came to a close, John began an on-and-off relationship with movie star Daryl Hannah, which lasted into the early 90s. After John graduated from law school, He went to work as an assistant district attorney in Manhattan, making $30,000 a year. The tabloids hounded John as he was still one of the most desired men in the country. So it was huge news when John failed the bar exam, twice. The story was plastered all over the papers, with headlines like, The Hunk Flunks Again. Author Randy Terraborelli says that was pretty unfair. What a lot of people didn't know is that, you know, John did have, you know, a learning disability. And, um, you know, he was, he, was, he was a little bit dyslexic and he also had ADD. Uh, and he, you know, was, was treated for that for, you know, most of his life. And, you know, the bar exam is really challenging. And the fact that John even took it at all was a- astonishing to people in his life who knew of his uh, learning disability, and they weren't surprised when he didn't pass it. But they were, they were also not surprised that he went back and did it again, because that was also very much like John. John eventually passed the bar exam on his third try in July 1990. In his spare time, John seemed like he was always on the move. The six-foot-one, 190-pound fitness buff liked to bicycle, rollerblade, and play football and frisbee in Central Park. In the 90s, it seemed like a day didn't go by without another picture of a shirtless John showing off his six-pack abs. This was in the era before Instagram, before blogs, and before TMZ. So his shirtless pictures fueled magazine sales. That Sexiest Man Alive cover? Well, it was one of the highest-selling covers of all time. His every move was chronicled by the tabloids. The media kept close tabs on him, whether it was at work or play. His fame far outpaced his personal accomplishments. As the son of a president and first lady, he was a celebrity by birth. It was a self-perpetuating form of notoriety. 
fame compounded by fame. Can you imagine though if he lived in today's world? How many followers would he have on Instagram or Twitter? He could have been the influencer of influencers. The fervor surrounding John in the 90s is summed up the best in that great Seinfeld episode called The Contest. You remember, you know, the one about Jerry, George, Elaine and Kramer competing to see who can remain the master of their domain the longest. Elaine runs into trouble after she spots JFK Jr. in her aerobics class. She becomes obsessed, timing her exit from the gym to line up with him pretending to live in Jerry's building in order to split a cab with him, getting blowouts before her workouts, and of course, no longer being the master of her domain. It felt like in the 90s, there was always a new story about John John. Even if you weren't impressed by his good looks, you probably heard that in January 1994, John's mom, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The disease progressed rapidly and she died at home with her two children at her side four months later on May 19, 1994. She was 64 years old. Jackie's death was a huge blow to John and to the Kennedy legacy. The Queen of Camelot was gone. But according to author Randy Terraborelli, it helped John get the strength to finally end his dysfunctional relationship with Daryl Hannah. It also didn't hurt that John had already met another beautiful blonde woman. Her name? Carolyn Bissette. Tara Borelli says Carolyn came into the picture at the exact right time. Prior to Carolyn Bissette, all the women that John had been involved with, he measured by the standards of his mother. I mean, it was just a natural way of doing things. You know, if mom approved, then maybe he didn't so much approve in the sense that, you know, his rebellious streak might kick in and he would glom on even harder to a woman that his mother didn't approve of. Carolyn originally met John at a charity event in 1992. Afterward, John visited the Calvin Klein Manhattan store where she worked to purchase three suits and Carolyn served as his stylist. They didn't start officially dating for a couple of years, but author Randy Terraborelli says that John fell instantly for Carolyn. When he first met her, he confided to a close friend, you know how you hear about meeting a girl and knowing instantly that she's the one? Well, it happened to me. So who was this woman that caught the attention of the most desirable bachelor in America? Carolyn Bissette was raised an hour away from Manhattan in Greenwich, the largest town on Connecticut's Gold Coast. A very exclusive and wealthy community, home to many hedge funds and other financial service firms. She was raised by her mother, a public school administrator, and stepfather, an orthopedic surgeon. She studied education at Boston University and after college, worked as a publicist and stylist for Calvin Klein. Legend has it that she got her job with Calvin Klein's Boston shop when she was spotted walking down the street, which isn't all that surprising because of her statuesque figure and her striking good looks. 
Aside from her runway-ready good looks, people who knew her say she was much more than that. She was quick-witted, charming, self-possessed, and incredibly stylish. In fact, Carolyn became and remains a fashion icon. Vogue magazine has described her everyday style as the mold for what is now the fashion editor outfit. She taught us that classic silhouettes, clean lines, and solid colors never get old. And last but not least, she reconfirmed that quiet, confident taste never goes unnoticed. We still associate button-downs, pencil skirts, and Manola Blahniks with Bissette, particularly when they're worn together. Her simple yet elegant style is emulated to this day by people like Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex. And there are countless Pinterest boards and Instagram accounts dedicated specifically to Carolyn and her fashion choices. John and Carolyn were hounded by the paparazzi from the very beginning. Their lives played out in the tabloids. And after Carolyn moved in with John, photographers were constantly outside their Tribeca penthouse loft, waiting to capture photographs of their comings and goings. Carolyn felt hunted and had a very difficult time adjusting to life in the spotlight. According to author Randy Terraborelli, at first this was something that was hard for John to understand because he grew up with it. It's all that he knew. Uh, he used to tell her, you know, welcome to the circus, you know, just, you know, just be careful of the clowns, you know. I mean, it, it, and, and he, he was speaking of the paparazzi. Um, <clears throat> she felt that he could have been a lot more uh, thoughtful and a lot more empathetic. While he was researching for his book, Tara Borelli spoke to someone who told him that John had found a surprising way to slip past photographers. Kennedy family hairdresser Lenny Holtzman told him that John would sometimes call him up. And, you know, tell him to, you know, bring a, 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 a female disguise to the airport and John would go into the men's room and change into a female disguise and then he would... Uh, get on his bike and take off. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine it myself. Lenny, Lenny said it was really a sight to, a sight to behold, you know, but uh, it was mostly just a, a really good tactic to get away from paparazzi because no one would ever expect that John would do such a thing. But according to this source, that's exactly what he did. Paparazzi wasn't the only thing that was tough for Carolyn to get used to. She also had a hard time fitting in with the massive Kennedy family. Terborelli says that during her first visit to the Hyannisport family compound, matriarch Ethel Kennedy quizzed Carolyn about current events at the dinner table, something that the Kennedys are known for. Ethel asked, so do you think a federal assault weapons ban will impact crime in our country, dear? Carolyn, who looked stunned, stuttered and answered, I, um, I think it will. Ethel responded, I'm sure you do, dear. You may want to read up on it. It's quite important. Tara Borelli says that the Kennedys are a very close-knit family, and that can be very intimidating to an outsider. In her mind, they all looked alike. <laughs> she couldn't tell one from the other. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, and they were very, very competitive. 
and they were all about sports and competitions. And, you know, and she really wanted to go to the Kennedy compound and read fashion magazines. And they told her, well, that's just not going to happen. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, and, and she didn't want to play football. And they all, you know, she was very much like Jackie. Despite some of the issues with their relationship, John proposed to Carolyn while they visited Martha's Vineyard over the July 4th weekend in 1995, three years after their first meeting. John took Carolyn fishing, which she later told a friend was the last thing she wanted to do. While they were out in the boat, John got down on one knee and said, fishing is so much better with a partner. And then he pulled out a platinum band with diamonds and sapphires, which was a replica of the ring worn by his mother. The couple was able to keep their engagement secret until Labor Day, when the New York Post ran a story with a close-up photo of Carolyn's left hand with the engagement ring. Suddenly, their engagement was everywhere. Young women mourned. But John had some other big news he was about to reveal to the world. According to an Esquire feature, the 90s was the golden age for glossy magazines. The internet wasn't what it's like now, so magazines were raking in huge money from advertising. Readership was through the roof for celebrity-type magazines like People, which in 1994 drew 3.1 million readers a week. The biggest magazines determined what people were wearing and talking about, and they turned celebrities into icons overnight. Remember that photo of a nude, pregnant Demi Moore on the cover of Vanity Fair? Or how about when Rolling Stone crowned Nirvana the new faces of rock in 1992? And now the man helping to sell those magazines was about to announce the launch of his own, called George. The tagline was not just politics as usual. It was a lifestyle magazine with politics at its core. And back in the 90s, that was pretty revolutionary. There had never been anything quite like it before. According to that Esquire article from earlier this year, John Jr. was inspired to create a political magazine that focused more on personalities than policy after he watched U.S. President Bill Clinton's successful 1992 campaign, which included playing the saxophone on the Arsenio Hall show. After coming up with the idea, he ran it by his friend Michael Berman, who at the time ran a Manhattan public relations firm. Berman immediately jumped on board. By the spring of 1994, the pair was meeting daily to strategize. And Berman eventually sold his PR firm and went into business with John. The pair pitched the George concept to nearly all of the major magazine publishers before they found someone who was interested in backing the idea. It was none other than David Pecker, a man who is now famous for his friendship with Donald Trump, and he currently owns America Media, which publishes the National Enquirer. In the 90s, he was the president of Hachette magazines, which at the time published Elle, Car and Driver, and Women's Day. According to reports from the time, Pecker jumped at the opportunity to make a deal with John and agreed to invest $20 million over five years. 
The next step for John was to assemble a team. Once they were in place, they had just three months to create the premiere issue, which was planned to launch in September 1995. John knew how important the first cover would be to establish the tone of the magazine. He invited his friend Herb Ritz, the fashion photographer, to his Tribeca loft to brainstorm ideas. John wanted Bill Clinton for the cover, but Ritz had another idea. During dinner with John and Carolyn, Ritz suggested supermodel Cindy Crawford who was everywhere, from the iconic Pepsi ads to the runways, and was the host of the popular MTV's House of Style. After Ritz floated the idea, Carolyn immediately piped in to say, that's perfect, she's apple pie, she is all American. Ritz suggested that Crawford dress up as George Washington, a cheeky play on politics and pop culture. They all agreed that this was the cover they were looking for. George Magazine was unveiled to the world on September 7, 1995, at Manhattan's Federal Hall, a vast marble building where George Washington took his presidential oath. John was dressed in a navy double-breasted suit with a bright white pocket square. It was the first time he addressed reporters since his mother's death the year before. And according to Esquire, he worked with an image consultant before the event so that he was prepared on how to handle any personal questions. John stood at a small wooden podium. Beside him was a large blow-up of the first cover of George, which showed Cindy Crawford in a powdered wig and a midriff-bearing costume. Now, now you may think that this cover is unusual, but uh, our, our first choice was Alan Greenspan in Speedo. <laughs> Politics isn't dry. It isn't dull. So why should a magazine that covers it be? In fact, George just doesn't cover politics. It celebrates it. We will celebrate it. Celebrate it as a general rule, but we won't be afraid to criticize it when necessary. John made it clear that he wanted this magazine to be free from ideology. Author Steve Gillen says, John believed that America was headed for a post-partisan era, and he wanted to be at the forefront of that movement. The magazine meant something else to John as well. Over time, as John thought more and more about possibly running for office, he saw George magazine as an accomplishment that he could run on. John always said that if he ran for office, he did not want to run as a Kennedy. He did not want to run uh, because of his family. He wanted to run because um, he, wanted to, he wanted to be able to say he achieved something. And George Magazine was going to be that thing that he, that he achieved. Media critics were quick to pounce on John's foray into the publishing world. At the time, Esquire called the magazine the riskiest venture of a pampered life indelibly marked by tragedy. The Los Angeles Times asked, is John Kennedy Jr.'s George making American politics sexy, or is the magazine just dumbing it down more? John and his staff mostly brushed off the criticism and focused on their goal to speak to a broader audience. John did this by being provocative. 
In each issue of George, he would publish a personal essay, a way of talking directly to his audience. In August 1997, he described his first cousins, Joseph and Michael, as poster boys for bad behavior. Congressman Joe Kennedy II had his marriage secretly annulled while Michael Kennedy was accused of having an affair with a 14-year-old babysitter. In a scathing editor's letter, John wrote, two members of my family chased an idealized alternative to their life. One left behind an embittered wife and another, in what looked to be a hedge against mortality, fell in love with youth and surrendered his judgment in the process. Alongside the letter, John posed semi-nude, gazing up at an apple, a symbol of temptation. No surprise, the letter and the photo garnered a ton of attention. And so did some of the people that John associated with. John invited Hustler publisher Larry Flint to be his magazine's guest at the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner. And he also visited Mike Tyson in jail. And he called the disgraced boxer a friend who is much different from his public image. Some of John's choices may have been questionable in the 90s, but they showed that he was aware of his celebrity and used that power to further his efforts. Esquire now points out that in the 20 years since his death, politics and pop culture have become so intertwined that candidates spend nearly as much time courting voters on late night shows as they do on the Sunday talk circuit. John John was ahead of his time. He knew the power of celebrity and pop culture and tapped into it well before anyone else. Politicians are now covered as if they are celebrities, while celebrities seek out a voice in politics. Just think of the ones that have dabbled in it, like George Clooney, or ones who have gone right in, like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sex and the City star Cynthia Nixon. And don't forget that U.S. President Trump was a reality TV star long before he was a political candidate. Whatever the media's assessment at the time, the premier issue of George magazine was a huge hit with the public. The original print run of 500,000 sold out within days of hitting the newsstands. So an additional 100,000 copies were printed and they sold out too. But don't worry though, if you're looking for it now, you can still buy it on eBay for about 150 bucks. After the successful launch of George, John went on a media blitz that included appearances on the popular TV sitcom Murphy Brown, the Larry King Live show on CNN, and a one-on-one interview with Dan Rather. While much media attention was paid to John's business, his personal life was still a subject of fascination. Photographers continued to stalk John and Carolyn as they tried to do normal couple things, walk the dog, shop for groceries, go for coffee. On February 25th, 1996, the couple was photographed and videotaped having a loud and physical dispute. According to the New York Daily News, they were walking their dog and holding hands when Carolyn suddenly stopped and started yelling at John. They continued walking and then a scuffle broke out. 
John was captured yelling at Carolyn, pointing his finger in her face, while she grabbed the back of his neck. According to a witness, he got hold of her wrist with his left hand and they were wrestling with each other. John then tried to unsuccessfully pull Carolyn's engagement ring from her finger. When Carolyn started to walk away with the dog, John yelled, you've got my ring, you're not going to get my dog. He sat down on a curb with his head down. Carolyn came back and sat with him. They talked for a few minutes and then they got up and walked away as if nothing happened. About a week later, a New York Daily News story covering the fight was published with the headline, Sunday in the Park with the George Editor. It contained a scandalous eight photo spread of the incident. Author Steve Gillen says that the cause of the infamous fight and many other fights between the couple was Carolyn's ongoing complaint that John let people walk all over him. The fight generated a ton of negative publicity. And not long after the story was published, Carolyn was summoned to the home of Ethel Kennedy in Hickoryville, Virginia. Author Randy Terraborelli picks up the story from here. Carolyn, of course, was reluctant to go because she didn't want to get chewed out by the family matriarch. <laughs> but really, that wasn't what it was about. You know, Ethel wanted to have a talk with her, and she told her straight from the heart, you know, you don't let these Kennedy men goad you into bad behavior. You know, she said, yes, John has a temper. They all have tempers. She said, but, you know, your job as a Kennedy wife is to, you know, not allow those kinds of scenes to occur. Randy says that Carolyn also confided in Ethel that day, that sometimes she didn't feel like she was enough for John or the Kennedy family. Ethel replied that she felt the same way when she married Bobby Kennedy. And she told Carolyn to look in the mirror every day and remind herself that she is enough, that she's the smartest person that John had ever been involved with. Later that summer, John and Carolyn began actively planning their secret wedding that was scheduled to take place in September. 90s paparazzi would go to extreme measures to get photos of big celebrity weddings, buzzing around the event in helicopters. Other stars who got married in the 90s fought off the invaders with all kinds of tactics, including floating balloons over the wedding location to discourage any aerial snooping. John and Carolyn knew their wedding would make huge news, and they wanted to avoid having their special day turned into a media circus. So immediately, they ruled out a big wedding at the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport. Steve Gillen writes in his book, The Reluctant Prince, that John's assistant suggested they consider Nova Scotia as a possible destination for the wedding. The couple went to Nova Scotia to check it out. And apparently, Carolyn called John's assistant and said, Honey, what are you doing to me? This is the most depressing place in the whole world. I am not getting married here. John then suggested Cumberland Island in Georgia located 20 miles off the coast and pretty inaccessible to most. On September 21st, 1996, America's most eligible bachelor tied the knot. John F. Kennedy Jr. married Carolyn Bissett 
in a secret ceremony inside Cumberland Island's tiny First African Baptist Church. The church, which had been founded by slaves in 1893, had peeling paint, cracked floors, and no electricity. So the 35 guests used candles and flashlights to observe the service. John and Carolyn were intense about making sure it was a private affair. Caterers and waiters and other reception staff were required to sign confidentiality agreements. Author Randy Terraborelli says that John was determined to give Carolyn the perfect wedding. It was, you know, sort of it was a tribute to his feelings about her in the sense that he knew how she felt about the years of paparazzi intrusion and he knew how tormented she'd been by the scrutiny and he wanted to do something for her almost as a wedding gift you know to to give her something that was completely private we all remember that photo of the newly married couple leaving the church it was one of the only ones released to the public after the wedding It shows the couple as they were stepping out of the rustic church. John is kissing Carolyn's gloved hand, and she's looking up at him, beaming. It's a look of pure joy. It was incredibly beautiful and romantic. In an era where every event is now covered from a thousand different angles and then posted immediately on Instagram, it's incredible that when we think about that one single image, we all remember that. The fact that they didn't release many other photos made that one image iconic. And part of that image was the dress that Carolyn wore that day. An article in Vogue magazine in 2017 described Carolyn's wedding dress by Narciso Rodriguez as one of the most sought-after gowns of all time and that she hands down changed the wedding dress game, making it acceptable and desirable to wear something refined and simple, a white silk slip rather than princessy tulle and an embellished gown. This year, John's friend Billy Noonan, who was at the wedding, released a video from the secret ceremony. The tapes were part of a TLC documentary called JFK Jr. and Carolyn's Wedding, The Secret Tapes. John can be seen addressing wedding guests with a glass of champagne and toasting to his new wife with these words. Carolyn has changed my life in a way that I never thought was possible. And she just made me tonight the happiest man alive. After the wedding, John and Carolyn assumed that the paparazzi would lose interest in them and leave them alone. When they arrived back at their Tribeca apartment after the honeymoon, photographers were waiting. Every day, between eight and 10 photographers could be found hanging around their apartment. Typical pictures of the couple would sell for between $150 or $500. Unique photos sold for a lot more. To give you an idea, those pictures of the two of them fighting, well, they sold for up to a quarter of a million dollars. Like with Princess Diana, the paparazzi hounded Carolyn. Here's author Stephen Gillen. I mean, they hunted her like an animal. They treated her horribly. And she was a, you know, an outgoing, warm person. And um, she found it difficult to leave her apartment. I mean, they would walk two feet in front of her and say awful things to her. 
just to get a reaction. So when John wasn't around, they would just, they would, they, they chased her into the street. She almost got hit by a car one time. So she became, understandably, uh, paranoid. Around this time, John took a different approach with the paparazzi. He'd always just kind of shrugged them off as part of his life. But he suddenly became more aggressive and sometimes combative with the media. Author Randy Terborelli says John had come to an important decision. He said to him, I don't want to be like those other Kennedy guys. You know, I, I, he was talking of his cousins. I don't want to be like them. I don't want to be that Kennedy guy who doesn't care what his girl thinks good. Stephen Gillen wrote in The Reluctant Prince that the death of Princess Diana in August 1997 sent Carolyn into a tailspin. She obsessively watched every minute of the news coverage, wondering if she too would meet a similar fate. Gillen states that Carolyn identified with Diana, who was tormented by the media that literally chased her to her death. John said to his friend, Billy Noonan, I'm not sure what I'm going to do about Carolyn. She's really spooked now. During this time, John had another important relationship which needed his attention. His best friend and cousin, Anthony Radswell, was battling cancer and was nearing the end of his life. By the summer of 1999, John's entire world seemed to be falling apart. In addition to the pending death of Anthony, George Magazine was struggling to gain readers and attract advertising revenue. At the same time, Hachette Publishing made clear to John that it planned to walk away from their partnership once their contract expired at the end of 1999. John's relationship with his wife was also under fire. In Randy Terraborelli's book, The Kennedy Heirs, he reveals for the first time that Carolyn had what he calls an emotional affair with a male friend she knew from her days working at Calvin Klein. The two reconnected at a benefit dinner and then began meeting regularly for coffee. The friend told Tara Borelli that one night when John was out of town, they went for dinner and then back to his apartment. She ended up crying about her marriage. He was consoling her and somehow they ended up kissing. Carolyn quickly pulled away, gathered her things and left. The next day, Carolyn called the friend to say she was extremely regretful and it could never happen again. And Tara Borelli says she was adamant that she had to tell her husband what happened. Randy says the incident was a real wake-up call for John and soon after, they enrolled in couples counseling. Adding to everything else that was going on in John's life, on Memorial Day weekend in 1999, John broke his ankle in a freak accident at his home in Martha's Vineyard. John had always been fascinated with flying and taken some lessons in the 80s, but quit when his mom expressed concern about the hobby. After her death, he began to pursue flying lessons again. And he also bought himself a crazy flying contraption called the Buckeye. It was essentially a three-wheeled go-kart with a parachute, which many of his friends called a flying lawnmower. Friends watched as John struggled to gain altitude in the Buckeye before crashing to the ground. 
John was rushed to hospital where he required surgery and a cast that would remain in place for six weeks, coming off just days before he died. The final week of John's life was spent speaking to potential investors for George magazine, including media mogul Rupert Murdoch. On Wednesday of that last week, two days before he died, John and Carolyn decided that John should move into the Stanhope Hotel on Fifth Avenue. The couple had been fighting because Carolyn did not want to go to Rory Kennedy's wedding that weekend at the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport. On Thursday, John went to the hospital and had his cast removed. John was still on crutches and doctors advised him not to fly because his ankle could swell up. Steve Gillen writes in his book that according to a reliable source, Carolyn accompanied him to the hospital and they were very affectionate, kissing passionately while seated in the reception area, which was pretty typical for the couple. They could be fighting one minute and not able to keep their hands off each other the next. That night, the last night of his life, John went to the Yankees game, where he was photographed with James and Lachlan Murdoch, the children of News Corp CEO Rupert Murdoch. The next morning, John's assistant got wind that Carolyn was refusing to go to Rory Kennedy's wedding. So she decided to stage an intervention. She went in John's office, shut the door, and called Carolyn. It's hard not to imagine what would have happened if Carolyn refused to go. Maybe her sister would have stayed home too. And maybe John would have also changed his plans. Instead, early in the evening of July 16, 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. checked the weather conditions for Martha's Vineyard and the surrounding area. The forecast indicated clear skies and good visibility. John and his sister-in-law, Lauren Bissett, then hopped in his little white convertible to make the commute from his office in Midtown Manhattan to Essex County Airport in Fairfield, New Jersey. Friday evening traffic was terrible, so they didn't arrive at the airport until 8 p.m. Carolyn Bissett Kennedy met them at the airport. John planned to fly his single-engine Piper Saratoga plane first to Martha's Vineyard to drop off Lauren. And then he and his wife would continue on to the Kennedy compound. John didn't realize that the weather conditions had deteriorated rapidly since he had checked the forecast a few hours earlier. A thick fog now hung over the ocean. John, Carolyn, and her sister Lauren took off from Fairfield, New Jersey at 8.38 p.m. At first, John flew along the Connecticut coast where the lights of homes and businesses served as beacons. Then 48 minutes into the flight, John passed westerly Rhode Island, banked right over the ocean and headed directly into a thick fog. He was now flying blind something he was not yet trained to do. Steve Gillen says that most experts believe that John suffered spatial disorientation, often referred to as spatial D. Unable to see stars, lights, land, or even the ocean, John lost his bearings and became disoriented. 
34 miles west of Martha's Vineyard Airport, the plane began a quick descent that ended after John banked right and the plane went into a downward spiral that sent them smashing into the ocean. Alarm bells began to ring later that night when John and Carolyn didn't arrive in Hyannisport as expected. By the next morning, a frantic search had begun. Rescuers fanned out by air, sea and land over 9,000 square miles. The first clue that something bad had happened came Saturday evening when a luggage tag belonging to Lauren Bissett washed ashore in Martha's Vineyard. The search continued day after day with no sign of the wreckage. It would take four more days of searching before the bodies were found by Navy divers. All three were strapped in their seats. Senator Ted Kennedy boarded a Coast Guard helicopter at his compound in nearby Hyannisport and was taken to a Navy salvage ship to witness the recovery. Senator Kennedy, joined by his two sons, Patrick and Edward, accompanied the bodies to the Coast Guard station in a fishing village at the heel of Cape Cod. A memorial mass was held for John and Carolyn on July 23, 1999, at a church in New York's Upper East Side. An eclectic mix of 350 mourners attended, including U.S. President Bill Clinton and family, along with Muhammad Ali, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Diane Sawyer. Wycliffe John was chosen as the soloist, singing the reggae song Many Rivers to Cross. John's uncle, Ted Kennedy, performed John's eulogy, while a friend of the Bassett family eulogized Carolyn. A separate candlelight mass was held for Lauren Bassett in Greenwich, Connecticut. After John died, George Magazine was bought out by Hachette Publishing, the company that had originally provided startup funding for the magazine. It had planned to walk away from George at the end of 1999, but things changed following John's death. At first, circulation jumped dramatically by 148%. But it didn't last. The magazine lost $10 million in the year 2000. In January 2001, 18 months after John's death, Hachette Publishing announced George Magazine would be shutting down. The final issue was published in March 2001 and contained a tribute to its founder. It's impossible to know if the magazine would have survived if John didn't die in that plane crash. Considering that the magazine business peaked in 2007 and has been in a swift decline since, chances are George wouldn't have survived. It's also impossible to know for sure if John would have ever run for office. But author Stephen Gillen says that John actually considered running for New York's open Senate seat in 1999, the one eventually won by Hillary Clinton. But he felt that the time wasn't right yet. Gillen says John didn't want to go into politics just because he was a Kennedy. He wanted to do things that no one expected him to do. He wanted to really find out who he was based on his own experiences. There was always this expectation that John would carry out the unfulfilled legacy of his father, that he would revitalize Camelot. He'd run for office, he'd go back to the White House, 
and we return to what people perceive to be a simpler time when his father was president. So I think for that older generation, um, it was a it was a double death uh, that they had to contend with. It wasn't just his death; it was the it was the death of Camelot. I mean, the, the hope of of uh, revitalizing Camelot died with John that night. The crazy thing is, there are some people out there who don't believe that John and Carolyn died in 1999. According to the supporters of the pro-Trump conspiracy theory QAnon, JFK Jr. is not only alive and well, he's planning to emerge from his 20-year hiatus and support U.S. President Donald Trump as his running mate in 2020. The theory that John is alive and living in Pittsburgh has been percolating on QAnon forums for over a year now. To be fair, not every Q believer buys the theory, but it's gained enough traction that t-shirts supporting the belief are now for sale on Amazon. John's sister Caroline has largely avoided public attention throughout her life. In 2008, she briefly entered the race for the New York Senate. Caroline withdrew her name to replace Hillary Clinton two months after entering the race, citing personal reasons. Caroline had been slammed in the media after using the phrase, you know, 168 times during a televised interview. Now a lot of people are looking to Caroline's son, Jack Schlossberg, to see if he will have political aspirations. The 26-year-old, who resembles his late uncle, is currently studying law at Harvard University. And he's been known to paddleboard shirtless around Manhattan. No need for paparazzi to follow him around, though. He posted the photos on his Instagram account. Interest in the Kennedy family isn't what it once was. Without John, there doesn't seem to be one standout member of the family. There have been some that have made the news for different reasons, though. Connor Kennedy, the grandson of assassinated presidential hopeful Bobby Kennedy, dated Taylor Swift in the summer of 2012. While Patrick Schwarzenegger, grandson of Eunice Kennedy and son of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Maria Shriver, dated Miley Cyrus in 2015. Sadly, this summer, Saoirse Kennedy Hill, the 22-year-old granddaughter of Bobby Kennedy, died of an apparent overdose at the Kennedy compound. Politics still runs in the family bloodlines. Joseph Kennedy III recently launched his primary challenge for U.S. Senate in Massachusetts. The grandson of Bobby Kennedy has served four terms as a Massachusetts congressman, and he made headlines in 2018 when he was chosen by the Democrats to give the rebuttal to Trump's State of the Union speech. Times have definitely changed since John died in 1999. We will probably never see another celebrity like him. He was the perfect combination of celebrity and politics. A large part of his mystique was wrapped up in the legacy of the supposed glory days of Camelot, an era that has faded further and further into the distance as baby boomers are replaced by Generation Xers and Millennials. The death of John and his wife Carolyn marked the end of that era. 
It also marked the end of the type of celebrity culture that existed before social media. The couple died before Instagram and Twitter, back when personal lives were still personal. They fascinated the public in a way that just is impossible now because there's no mystery anymore. Social media gives today's celebrities a direct line to their fans, so we know practically every move they make, from what they eat to where they vacation. In the era of John and Carolyn, despite being hounded by paparazzi, we really only got tiny morsels of their lives. The rest was still shrouded in mystery. We hungered for more, but they died before we got a chance to get it. That's why our obsession continues. That's why books and documentaries exist and podcasts are still being written about them 20 years later. Thanks for joining me as we look back at the 90s fascination of JFK Jr. and his beautiful wife, Carolyn. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and gets more people finding our podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. And you can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard on this episode and links to our guests, Stephen Gillen and J. Randy Terraborelli. Thanks to both of them for sharing their memories with us. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can always email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.